Hello, and welcome to this week's episode of A Mic on the Podium with me, Michael Seal. Today, I conduct a conversation with a Finnish conductor who also started his musical life as a violinist, but after studying with both Jorma Panola and Leif Segerstam, he's gone on to have a truly international career, holding title positions in Japan, Germany, South Korea, and New Zealand. It's a great pleasure to welcome Pietari Inkanen. Pietari, how are you? Very good to meet you and to see you and to chat with you today. I'm very well. Nice to meet you too. And where are you in the world? I live in Switzerland these days, over 10 years now, and I'm, I'm home in Basel at the moment. Very, very nice. Nice place to live. The reason for asking is obviously later on we'll be talking about well, the three slash four places that you regularly go to conduct and traveling, but I thought I'd double check to see where you were. Mm. On the podcast, I always go right back to the beginning. And I know from reading Wikipedia, which of course is so true and often yeah. full of facts, <laughs> he lied, um, that you studied the violin and piano and you started at the age of four. So did you come from a musical family? Mm, musical family, yes, professionals, no. Okay. So we have some further back in the in the family. Some church musicians have have been there, but mostly hobby 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 musicians. Let's let's put it like that. Yes. So music was was around, but mainly as as hobby amongst many other things, and then. Mm. Then one, one by one, the other hobbies, for a reason or another, tended to drop out. And hmm. I was then left with, with, uh, with the violin and football that yes. I was also very interested in. And then both became rather early on, rather serious. And then there was just not enough time. And uh, that final decision had to be made. <laughs> Is it a decision? I mean, I know we love what we do. and We're very lucky as conductors that we do what we do. But is there any part of you, for instance, you know, I was quite a talented cricketer when I was a young, mm. um, and I had a trial for my county when I was 16. I didn't mm. get through and I wasn't good enough. Part of me wishes I'd tried it a bit harder. Is there anything uh, in your mind that wishes you'd, you'd tried football? I, I don't think so, really. I, yeah. I still enjoy watching it. And, um, and when there happens to be a match on a free evening in San Siro or somewhere <laughs> else, I, I, I tend to go still and I, I enjoy yeah. that. Yeah. You know, know, knowing it also rather closely, how, what, are the, what are the things to really appreciate there? And uh, then, whatever, a couple of years ago in Torino, I saw then finally Ronaldo play <laughs> and uh, in Champions League game. And, um, he did some amazing things, and it's nice to, like a musician, music. The more you know, more you can even appreciate the, the fine things. It's the same in football. Absolutely true. I didn't ask because I didn't know, or maybe I didn't notice when I looked at the Wikipedia. Which part of Finland are you from? Kouvola, southeast, yes. rather rather close to the Russian border. Okay. Um, Especially the current border. In the yes. past, it used to be further away, but we lost some of it, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> oh, dear. My, my city is very close. Yeah. Um, well, we won't, we won't um, linger on that, given current mm. events. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, uh, and all of that. Uh, yeah. The reason why I asked was um, because at some point, uh, Wikipedia mentions that you, you started or were in a rock band. Um, 
how long was that for? And is there anything of your days in your rock band that you look back on now as a conductor and use? Yeah, I mean, that was during the school time um, from kind of from the fifth to the ninth grade. Yeah. When we used to and pro provide the music in the, in the school discos and stuff like that. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I mean, it was fun too. I, I don't know. The good question. I mean, yeah, I mean, somehow all of all of these things had its runs its course, and it was yes. that was clearly enough for me of yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's fair enough. I mean, yeah, I was into pop music a little bit when I was a teenager, but eventually classical music took over. You go to the Sibelius Academy uh, in Helsinki, and uh, you graduate in 03 as a violinist, and then two years later as a conductor. Now, we've got to conducting, um, which is the important thing and the reason for the whole podcast. Who was teaching at the Sibelius Academy in um, 03 to 05? Um, and uh, was it something that you'd thought about doing all along, or was it something that came into your mind when you joined the Sibelius Academy? I mean, I started in Sibelius Academy Youth Department with the fiddle already at 11 years old or so. And a couple yeah. years later, that time Jorma Panula, our, our guru professor, yes. was still was the professor in, in Sibelius Academy and he started an experimental class. Mm. So he just wrote a little, he typical his style, he used to have like a tiny pencil in his pocket and he scribbled and on a tiny piece of paper, whoever from the youth department kids want to try conducting next Saturday with Haydn Symphony number, I don't remember anymore, yeah. go up with the score to the concert hall. And, and I went and we well, were some 20, 20 kids there or so with the conducting class orchestra present and off we off we go one at a time he was there with the camera of course we knew knew pretty much nothing <laughs> but it was just somehow I, he had a good eye to choose the right students i think yeah yeah so um it was checking sort of a sure musicality too but the right kind of personality who might survive this job mm. and um, so he took three of us as kind of a youth students so not officially in the conducting class, obviously, but uh, like an experimental program, and that's how it all started. However, the violin was always, I was very, very keen on the, on the instrument since very early on. And um, to master that to the highest level, I mean, I, I won the national violin competition, got fourth prize in the Sibelius competition and played a lot of solo things. To bring it to that level, of course, has to be done first. And that's yes, why I... I went in between to Cologne, Zakhar Bron, Vadim Repins and Maxim Bengeros and many, many, many others teacher. And I played for Vadim when I was 15 in a master class. And Vadim said that you should go to Bron. I'll give him a call now. Mm. And that's, I, I had this couple of years, um, couple of years in Germany. And that was, that was really the time to be in this environment with such a, such an amazing talents, fiddle talents, and um, I mean, of course, Maxim and Vadim, they are a bit older, they were already gone, but that's how, how that happened. And um, after these competitions and playing quite a lot of concerts, then somehow always that, that was in the back of the mind. At one point, I would like to yeah. 
take further steps in the in the conducting and i said to i said to braun that i'm now i'm gonna apply it's very difficult to get in sometimes they didn't take anybody sometimes one sometimes two sometimes so hmm. forth now the program has changed i think a bit short shorter programs and they get more more people in but at our time it was, was quite tricky even trickier to get in i said it's it's not not guaranteed at all so but <laughs> if i get in i'm gonna have to move back to finland and uh, we sort of made a deal and if i don't i stay and we do a few more competitions and like yeah. everybody else and uh, luckily i got in and that was it then i called bron and i'm i'm going starting next autumn and um already the i, I went into the proper class and Leif Segerstam was the professor then Jorma Panula had already retired yeah and um I spent more or less um one season in the class properly and the second season already there came a cancellation with the Helsinki Philharmonic with whom I, I already knew very well I played several times mm. as a soloist there so it was kind of a very natural thing Segerstam said, and you do it. Yeah, it was um, it was a complicated program. Walton, Walton Symphony, Arnold Overture, and Elgar Cello Concerto. The orchestra never played the Walton, and um, yeah, it was it was in a way not an autopilot thing to do. <laughs> no, <not laughs> in the slightest. Learn, learn, learn in a in a very short time, and that's how it all then started. Yeah. Really. Well, I mean, uh, are you saying that it was the Walton's first symphony? Well, frankly, yeah, the second Walton, symphony. Walton, yeah, Walton, yeah, the, yeah. I mean, that's that's a piece I did quite early on in my conducting mm -hmm. life, and and it pops up regularly uh, mm -hmm. because I love it. But by mm -hmm. God, is it difficult to put together? Yeah. Um, and especially if an orchestra doesn't know it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's extremely difficult. Yeah. Um, wow, what a what a what a big I, jump in! Yeah, and I mean the, the story. If you want to hear even more details, it, yeah, it, it's actually quite interesting. It was the the intendant at the time, the orchestra manager. She called me that I mean Leif has obviously had said that okay, you you should do it, and she called me that you know the conductor is is ill. He has traveled from America. This he's in in uh, in the hotel in Heathrow or something very unwell he's not able to travel further so can I bring you the Walton score like this is like the night before yeah to study just to run it because the orchestra, orchestra has to rehearse it nobody knows it and then I said yeah great so I, I <laughs> studied the whole night and put my markings down and go to the orchestra hi nice to see you guys here we go let's uh, at the end of the day it went went fine I was lucky they they offered already Four months later, they still had an open slot. So right. after the first rehearsal, they offered, would you like to do that? It's, it's going well. Sure. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Let's see you then in, the, in February. This was now in November. And uh, I take my markings out <laughs> or back, go back home. She calls like a couple hours later. Mm, you know, he just had doc doctor saw him. He's really unwell. He certainly cannot, still cannot travel. Can I bring the score back to you and could you look at the overture please <laughs> Tam O'Shanta Malcolm Tam O'Shanta yes yeah. wonderful piece yeah so then she came back dropped the scores to me I, I put my markings back in <laughs> study quickly the Arnold so that I can somehow run it in the rehearsal also it was quite a tricky handwritten score I mean big score and you go I still remember that <laughs> mm. 
clearly it's it's uh, more than 20 years ago now but anyway so i go second day rehearse things hi guys nice to see you again <laughs> let's have a look at the overture as well and at the end okay good luck tomorrow for the general and concert and then i same story again leave the scores behind go back home and she calls again like half an hour later no where can I bring the El Cacello concerto? <laughs> <laughs> Just got home, a whole lot back off. And so it was, uh, yeah, quite a special week. Yeah. And that's, that's how it all started, really. Well, I have to point out for the non-conducting or even non-playing listeners, of which there, I'm sure there are quite a few, that's a tricky program to put yeah, together. It was, a, it was a risky thing to do. Yeah, yeah. It was all about, I mean, Leif was teaching that week. He was in Helsinki. He was at the time chief conductor of the orchestra. He could have taken over. But this mm. is also part of the Finnish tradition that, you know, you really give chances. Mm. And that was very clearly his... his decision this mm. you can do it this is your chance now go mm. then, well, I, then, then I, we will pass that on and we do pass that on you know in those similar situations to, to the to the next ones you know and well i, I love yeah i love that finnish tradition and i think i benefit i think i benefited from it when i started conducting and Zachary oromo was the music director in birmingham that mm. basically his he came to watch me rehearse an amateur orchestra Funnily enough, it was Walton's first symphony and he watched right. me rehearse the second and third movement with an amateur orchestra. Yeah. And I think his attitude was, give the guy a go. Now, I was a member of the orchestra and in the UK, frankly, when one of your own stands in front of the orchestra conducts, it's not looked upon well. It's mm. it's, it's almost frowned upon. Um, mm. I know some people who run other orchestras have said, oh my God, that would never happen here. Mm. But Zachary's answer was, "Give him a go if he's got talent. You know why can't we? Why can't we use him?" And I think that really is a Finnish attitude, and it's one I applaud. And it's one mm. that later on the CBSO did with a young conductor called Alpes Chohan, who was in the youth orchestra, and we gave him some time to, you know, absorb what the orchestra was saying. Gave him some little bits of work here and there, and you know, he's now gone on to have a flourishing international career. And I think, you know, stopping that or repressing it is terrible. I think it's yeah. it's a really good thing. Yeah, you just have to have to have the right opportunities at the right time. Yeah. But a lot of talented people don't get any opportunity at any time. And how, 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 and this so many things you cannot learn in the class. Yes. I mean, the conducting class orchestra in Helsinki, it is like a simulator. You can <laughs> crash, but you don't die. Yeah. <laughs> you can really try, try the tricky things for the first time. And that's, with an orchestra who also, they can play their instruments, but they don't know the repertoire. They can't. Yeah. So this is the right level situation, the best situation for a young conductor to learn. Mm. But then you have to take next steps. You have to learn how to, how to deal with the rehearsals and plan the rehearsal, how, how to make the whole week work. And this you absolutely cannot learn in the class. No, absolutely. Before we leave your studies, I'm going to ask... You know, on the podcast, the teaching of Leif Sagerstam has come up many times before, and Dalius Tosevska, um, and a couple of other people have been taught by Leif. Mm. Jorma Panela has come up often before. Right. I was taught by him for two weeks. I remember it very, very, very well. I wonder whether you could tell me, because 
obviously this is a conducting podcast, but Zach Abron is such a big name in the violin world. I wonder, could you tell me what his reaction was when you got into the class? And were there anything from a teacher of that stature that you take now as a conductor and think, well, actually, just those principles work from Zach Abron? What was Braun's reaction? Yeah, I mean, I called him immediately, as we as as promised, <laughs> and he was like, if I remember correctly, he was like, I mean, not surprised. He was kind of quiet for a little bit, and and in a way, a little bit disappointed. Mm-hmm. But then, immediately, yes, and that's but that was the deal. That's what yeah. we agreed, and I have to go. And and the, you know, since since then, every year I play with his. Uh, from the most famous students to the to the younger ones, and we just did a couple of years ago his 70th birthday concert with the whole spectrum of yeah. of his, different generation of his pupils, and and you know it's it's still remained sort of a family, and like with Repin, we really play. It's a nice circle ca- closing that you know he really kicked this route for me, and now we played more or less every season together, and and so mm. forth. So it's. It's a quite a quite a special, a special family, I would say. And um, sure, when you have a fiddler, soloists, and um, or or people who have come through the same same system, many many memories and some of his trademark musical things, even somehow in certain repertoire, especially hmm. through even from these players, and and yeah, ni- nice memories, I would say. Yeah. Well, you go out into the big wide world. Um, I would imagine, um, just on a personal note, that it would have been probably towards the end of Sakari's time. So 07 or 08, I remember playing for you. You came to the CBSO when I was in the CBSO. Uh, I was there for 22 years. You may or may not know that. And I have a a vague little bell telling me that you came for the first time and conducted Sibelius's first symphony. Uh, Would I be right? That kind of detail about repertoire, I'm not quite sure. <laughs> well, possible. Yeah. possible. But, I, but I remember you coming, and of course, those are the first steps. Yeah. But not long into your your you know your your journey into the world of conducting, you become music director of the New Zealand Symphony Orchestra, and have since gone on to become uh, honorary conductor. Now I'm going to throw some dates out for the 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 listeners because. Uh, it's going to end up in a in quite an important question. Um, you do that job until 2015, and then in 2016, you become chief conductor of the Japan Philharmonic, where you're still the chief conductor. In between, you do two years at the Ludwigsburg Schloss Festspiele, which is a, that's, a, that's a mouthful. Um, that's good, good, good pronunciation. <laughs> uh, well, I'm better at German than I am at Finnish, um, as, right. we, as we ascertained before we started. <laughs> um and then chief conductor for five years of the Prague Symphony Orchestra uh, between 2015 and 20. But then from 17 onwards, chief of the Deutsche Radio Philharmonie. And from January this year, you've become music director of the KBS Symphony Orchestra, which is the broadcasting orchestra in South Korea. So basically, you've got four different regular orchestras. The one in Japan, the one in Germany, the one in South Korea, and the New Zealand one where you're honorary conductor. The mindset of those orchestras, is it easy to, I mean, I know you've had long relationships with them all, but is it easy to switch between them all? Are the mindsets similar? How the, you know, how they work, how they, you know, uh, put the concerts together? How easy is it to switch from one to another? I mean, that's the thing also you, you learn 
learn by doing. Yes. I mean, they, these, that's why I, I mean, obviously, um, I prefer these longer relationships. Yeah. It's exciting in the beginning to, to run around and hmm. do a lot of things, different things, but still the best results come when you know each other well. Hmm. The better you know, you, you continue, even that, that Ludwigsburg job, even the festival orchestra. Yeah. Even we don't, we do a couple programs during the festival and then we don't see again for nine months, but you really continue. Everybody remembers everything. You continue where you left off yeah. nine months before. And, and that's, that's how you progress together and develop together your style and sound and, and, and so on. Um, but yeah, I mean, a German radio orchestra compared to Japanese or a new world orchestra, it's, it, there are, they are very different. And um, I, I enjoy that. I mean, how somehow a lot of things are becoming through this globalization, uh, sort of uh, standardized in, in any yeah. way. And that's a bit of a shame. Mm. So I, I really, really vote for this to, to keep, keep the, in a good sense, the traditions alive. And even if it's a, a younger, ensemble really create your strong own way of playing and identity and then that becomes the tradition there mm. and uh, so i think i think these differences are are important and good and worth to cherish but yes for us it means that let's put it very very simple example for a listener usually usually a new world orchestra especially plays really on the beat mm. and you go with Bruckner's symphony to a German orchestra mm. and, and give a similar beat and the sound comes there yes. or down there and that's a very very different kind of a response and you do sort of have to in some ways even modify your your body language and technique to to get out what you want and and vice versa if the response is right on the spot in certain orchestras and if you want that depth of sound you also need to modify the other way to somehow mm. in in some some cases even becoming just less clear that it doesn't sound so mm. vertical you know yes absolutely yeah and, absolutely and 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 then the goal still for me is not to make all these orchestras sound the same but to strengthen their their strengths mm. and um uh, but yes you have to you have to adapt and i i find this side sort of challenge just refreshing mm. i i think it's it's very interesting i mean before you get to the stage that you've been at you know uh, you know five years or more as a chief or a music director which means that you've built that relationship before then you you often as a conductor might become a principal guest or you might have a regular once a year slot you know i'm in that position now desperate really to get to a music director place but what you what it means is you go back to orchestras every year uh, and and you're so right in what you say is that you know when i go to an orchestra one of the many uk orchestras i go to every year you remember how they play very quickly and then i go to trondheim and it's different and then i go to wdl funk house and it's different and you have to adapt but what you're they've all got their strengths and you know you you want to play on their strengths and you want to build on their strengths and as you say, if you go there regularly enough, it, it almost feels like, hey, you know, remember me from last time? Yes, well, I remember what you're all about. We remember what you're, you know, and then we, we carry on. 
it's it it's very interesting uh, and i like your what you're saying about where after the beat people play because of course that's the one thing about guesting that's always frightening. You know, Monday morning, you walk out, the intendant or the chief executive introduces you. You say, good morning, and you put a beat down, and you have no idea when, what or how or when it's going to come back. It's going to come out, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I have one side question, actually, because I did go, I have been once to the KBS Symphony Orchestra in um, Korea, and myself and Ian Bostridge, the English tenor, we did a programme of Handel Arias and the second... When Sorry. was that? I'm looking at a massive poster in my room and I'm looking on it desperately for a date and I cannot find the date. Um, yeah, any, any, I, any idea how many years ago? Oh, possibly 10. Yeah, I can oh. tell you, the poster tells me that it, that it was the 638th subscription concerts of the oh, KBS Symphony. That tells me already a little bit. Yeah, okay. Somewhere yeah. at the, oh, because seven is the lucky number. We just passed the 777. Uh, okay, right. So somewhere we are roughly at seven eighty, probably. Yeah. Well, what I remember take away from that week particularly, and this has got nothing to do with the orchestra, it's to do with the audiences. Um, I met Ian Bostridge on the second day or something like that, and he came in and we rehearsed the Handel arias together, and and he said to me, "Have you worked here before?" I said, "No." He said, "Well, just be prepared. It's the, it's a really young, really vibrant audience. You know, coming from Europe, where our mm-hmm you know, age range of audiences are, are let's put it, more on the greying side of on, on the hair uh, or even losing your, their hair. Mm-hmm. Over there, they were really young, very, very enthusiastic. I remember the concert um, at the, uh, the uh, in Seoul, particularly, how much they enjoyed the, the concert. How do you find those audiences? I, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you love it as much as I did when I was there. No, no, no. It's yeah. the response, in, and now this hour, journey together in with my new role there it has been really enthusiastically followed and reported on and and i mean of course with uh, during the pandemic we had several yeah several restrictions the, the last times now solar center we could only fill 75 percent, but with 2600 seats that's still mm. a lot of people when in around the world there has been quite a different stories 100 people allowed there and 200 there or 50 yeah. percent there so it was still the real deal every time i even went once during during the sort of the first lockdown period i i could go and they even then we had like 1300 people then 50 percent. and when you have 75 it's all and it's really for okay. like that you get this this volume back of 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 the of the crowd and and it's it's really especially after these studio productions only and yes very limited number audiences there and there then to see crowd like that again i mean it's also amazing and they're yeah very supportive very enthusiastic uh very quiet when we when you're playing Um, absolutely super concentrated but then they they really really show the appreciation when when they really like it, it's it's quite quite amazing. Now, with other conductors who have your schedule, um, and that's why I was interested to see where you were. And obviously, home is Switzerland. 
with other people with your schedule. So you you regularly have to go to Japan, Germany, South Korea, and New Zealand. How do you cope with the traveling? Do you have specific things? Do you try and you know do two or three weeks in a in a go in each place so that you're not literally sitting on a plane every single week? Obviously, that's that's the. I mean, the jet lag is the really the only thing I would. If you could somehow eliminate this, I mean, if the if the I mean, time zones, basically. I mean, if we could just travel up and down <laughs> yeah, on yeah. the flights, I think that that would make this job yeah. um, easier. And I think uh, that somehow this changing the time zones all the time, it doesn't seem to become any easier with, with age or with experience. Yeah. Yeah. I think that experience doesn't really help. Um, yes, you're right. I mean, this... this um, the main headache is 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 with my agent to to yeah. to make it as 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 smooth as possible the schedule and um, like now I'm off off to Bayreuth now for three months uh, on Sunday starting rehearsals next Tuesday there so then you are I'm not moving basically from the green hill not basic going down the down the hill to a shop and back up again uh, I I also live right behind the Festival House so that's gonna be the least travel. Hmm. Um, ever <laughs> this summer but then um combining um when the new season starts immediately in the in the september in september again i will then fly do a couple of weeks with my german orchestra go straight to seoul from there to australia perth with sydney symphony now first time in the new opera house after the renovation i'm very excited to see that how it's turned out hmm. And then from there to Japan, and then back to Seoul, and then home. So yeah. that is basically just a practically one jet lag trip. So that, <laughs> that's that's how you maximize the yeah, yeah. minimize the uh, strain on the on the body. Well, uh, it's I, I know how tiring it can be, but doing it that way, I suppose, when you do two or three weeks in each place or two weeks in each place, you've got chance to sort of uh relax a little bit um and you're not if you do what a week here a week there it's it's absolutely crazy um yeah. now you've just mentioned it um the question i've written down on my little book dear listener is opera Bayreuth and beyond um i know you do you've done quite a lot of opera and obviously you're going to be at Bayreuth for three months which is a wonderful place i went for the first time before the pandemic and absolutely loved it there um do you try and do at least one production a year uh, or I mean, again, yeah. that's down to you and your agent, but how do you try and fit it in with your four other yeah. commitments? Correct. That's pretty much the maximum one can manage with, yeah. with several simultaneous jobs. Yeah. So if there was more opera in, in the, in the future, sure. Some of these jobs will have to go. That's, yeah. That's the reality. I mean, new productions, it takes its time and you should be there. Mm. One should be there as much as possible. And uh, that would, I mean, if one day to be associated more closely or with the title in an opera house, then I think another symphonic job is the maximum you can have on top. Yes, yes. That, that will still work. Mm. Still, still guest conducting will be very limited, but... That's how most of us, at the end of the day, then sooner or later, prefer to do it. Yeah. Let's, so, let's 
yeah, so you have your friends, and if you've got an opera house, of course, there's a lot more commitment, especially if you're in a German opera house and you become Absolutely. a gay day. Well, then that's yes, you'll have to, yeah. it varies, but you'll be yeah. expected to conduct whatever 40, 50 shows a year, a couple mm. premieres, some with that of Nama. Yeah, yes, that's a, that's a big commitment, yes. Yeah. Um, is it your first time at Bayreuth? Uh, no, yes and no. I mean, um, so I conducted last year Valkyries there, yeah. and um, couple, before a couple years before visited first time. I mean, when it was was clear, not announced yet that I will be doing the new ring cycle. Um, I spent some time in in the pit, in rehearsals, in the in the auditorium, in rehearsals, um, performances as well. In, in the hall, in the pit, in performances, just to just to get an idea, because that uh, special pit situation you cannot practice anywhere else. No, well, that's why I asked. I mean, very different, yeah. and um, um, and you just have to get used to it. Uh, Andrew Nelson said he did the same when yes. he knew he was going to go. Um, obviously, I knew Andrew from his CBSO days. But he yeah. said he did the same. He went the year before and yeah. shadowed Christian Tielemann, I think. Um, yeah. and, and just, yeah, you get a feeling of what it sounds like. He spent a lot of time there as well, just watching yeah. Tielemann's rehearsals. And that. I mean, yeah, it is a very unique situation. And yeah. historically, you know, big names, Zolti, Karayan, many, many people have have sort of struggled to come to terms with that. And Zolti, Zolti didn't really find a way to, he wanted to tear off the, the cupola and, <laughs> and it like, but of course, I mean, that's uh, completely <laughs> impossible. <laughs> no, no, if the master, master wanted that way, no, yeah. you are not going to take it away. <laughs> no, if they're not going to put air conditioning in there, they're definitely not going to take away the, the cupola over the top yeah. of the pit, which yeah. inflects the sound, dear listener, onto the stage so that the singers yeah. can hear the orchestra a lot clearer. Um, but what it means is that when you're in the in the auditorium, you know the the sound is completely different from a, a different from any other opera house. And whilst we're talking about air conditioning and keep it safe, you know what the master wants. You know, when I was there, it was thirty five degrees outside and thirty one inside. It was just horrendously hot. Um, and, and yeah, but what an amazing place! I went and had to look at the pit. Uh, you know, and just looked at it and thought, wow, this is the sort of place you really do need to go and experience before you before you yeah. conduct there. I'm sure. Yeah, absolutely. So every every minute you can spend on the on the podium there, every, every minute you are a minute more experienced mm. in that specific spot. It is it is very special, and it's of course it is the greatest honor to be one of one of these colleagues mm. to be allowed to sit in that chair. Uh, but it's a, it's a great responsibility. It is a challenging challenging spot. Mm. Whole world looks. <laughs> great tradition there this orchestra many people played there decades know every word know these works inside yeah. out back to front and it's it's quite quite a special situation yeah the 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 concert master of the wdr funkhaus orchestra uh i'm sure he works in Bayreuth every single year um, uh, Yurai, yeah. his name is. Yurai, Yurai, yeah. yes, Yurai. Yeah. yeah, and you know, he he talks of it so fondly when I've spoken to him about it. And uh, yeah, what a place, what a place. Yeah. Um, there is an 11th question, 
which you, if you've not listened to any episodes, you won't know about, but it's the unwritten 11th question that every conductor has been asked. When you get a new score, what is your process for learning it? Do you, you know, go big and uh, start big and go in small? Or do you start at page one and work your way through? Do you use a piano? Do you not use a piano? And for the conducting geeks and students and myself, are you a scribbler in of things in many colours uh, or uh, marker pens or whatever else? Or are you, as I suspect, because, you know, your panel has had a, an influence on you, are you somebody who writes less now? What's your process for learning a score? That's a good, good question. Yes, very also geeky question. So maybe, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, let's say uh, how to start. Yes, this bird eye view is the first thing. Mm. I, I first brand new thing world premiere obviously open the front page scroll it through very quickly in mm. a way to see the first first impression of of somehow the the, the landscape mm. are there many mountains or it is very flat or a lot of water and you know, <laughs> like a like a pilot yeah and, uh, very bright lights or is it a night flight you know yes yeah. that kind of thing and uh then go again from beginning, quite often uh, sitting on a piano already. Mm. Putting in general, I put very little markings down. I this kind of color coloring things, I, I cannot stand that. That you, you I, it is very disturbing for me to see thousand colors. Even in a in a in a moment of, of learning something, I, I really want to see just really the, the music, some some little markings, yes. Um but yes, on on a piano. Um, then look, going again from from beginning to um, all the playing playing things and potentially spotting already mistakes. Mm. And um, in, usually in these situations, then also communicating with the composer. Mm. So a great great advantage, and even sometimes changing some things together. You know that might. Is, is this sure what you want? Are you what are you after there? And as a string player, often often you can even some can suggest some very specific things that might even lead to a even an improvement. And uh, I did that answer all your questions. Or it did you... answer all my questions. Um, I mean, wh what's interesting about the podcast is the previous episode uh, mm -hmm. was with Roy Goodman, who uh, worked with the Hanover Band, was very involved with historically informed performance. He was a user of many, many, many colors. Right. I use colors. Mm. I think the I think the the colored writers are slightly winning over a hundred and eight or nine episodes. Oh, but wow. the important okay. the no the the important thing is is that it's very interesting that uh, we all have our own method and it all works for us all individually. Your yeah. your metaphor about the night flight or the view from a plane. It's very similar to one that Barry Wordsworth used many, many episodes, 70-odd episodes ago, where he said, it's like arriving at a viewpoint. You get out yeah. of your car, and the first thing you do is go, oh, nice view. There's some hills, there's some trees. Yeah. Then you notice, oh, there's a little church down there. And then you notice, oh, there's a field full of cows here. Oh, there's a stream, there's a waterfall. And that's how he talked about learning the score. As you said, exactly like you, get the bigger picture and then zone in on the details. And sometimes yeah. even what flowers are growing in that field over there, you know, and that's exactly it. So yeah. the the reason why I asked the 11th question is, yes, there's a geeky element about pens and pencils, but also 
you know, the, we all have our own way of doing it. And it's interesting to hear how you do it, you know. Um, and so, yeah, there are elements of what you do that I've heard many times before, but then you're in a minority for not marking that much. But then I, I do remember uh, Yorma panel are looking at my score for Shostakovich 1 and saying, oh, this is too many colours, too many, this is not children's work. It's too many colours. <laughs> um, probably sprinkled with a few Finnish swear words and looking at me and saying, what are you doing, you know. Um but because he 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 barely wrote anything. He said, mm. "If you're guesting, you should only write the bare minimum in." Um, and yeah, it it, it it's a, it's why I love the question. Right, right. But yeah, I mean, whatever works for you. That's yeah. the point. Yeah. Usually, at this point, some of you may be reaching for the little button that advances this episode on by thirty seconds, meaning that you may be missing interesting developments on my Patreon page. Over recent months, my Patreon page has expanded and is quickly becoming a great place for conductors and lovers of conducting to hang out. There's over 20 hours of interviews with musicians, composers, soloists and managers, as well as 20 bonus mini-episodes that accompany this podcast. I've written an article on score marking, started a series of articles on the art of programming, and I'm about to start a new series on string playing for non-string playing conductors. And you can even have conducting lessons from myself. All of this is available at patreon.com forward slash a mic on the podium. And from just £5 a month, which is less than a pint of beer in most cities, you can gain access to this ever-growing resource on conductors and conducting. Details and links to the page are in the show notes attached to this episode. Now, the all-important 10 questions with my guest, Pietari Inkanen. Pietari, it is time for the 10 questions that every conductor has answered since the first episode. And I always start with, what sound or noise do you love and what sound or noise do you hate? I mean, I do love the sound of a great orchestra. Mm. Don't we all? Don't we all, but I mean, that's the first thing that comes to mind. Yeah. Um, Yeah. The sound of Wagner with the Festspiel Orchestra. Yeah, and it doesn't get much better than that. No, 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 it doesn't. No. <laughs> and uh, um, what I hate, um, sound that I hate, in any type of elevator music. Uh, brilliant answer. It's I hate kind it. Of, kind of slightly something disturbing in the background, just to break this uncomfortable silence. But why? Why couldn't there be a 13 seconds, even an uncomfortable silence in an elevator. Why, why, why <laughs> do you need this thing? <laughs> and, and are you the same in restaurants? I hate uh, music yeah. in the background oh, yeah. of restaurants. That, that is not such a, quite as black and white situation. I mean, yeah. if you are in a very echoey, old, castle restaurant that, mm. and, and it's very cleverly done just to break, otherwise you sound like in a big cafeteria and you hear every conversation. I mean, this kind of acoustical, breaking the acoustical problem, that is a very other reason to yeah. use some sounds. And, um, and that, that's, but you, you get also, obviously we get either irritated by such a thing or not, but when it's done very well, it also mm. sticks out to me very clearly. I often wanted to ask them who is, who is doing actually this, who is in charge, who chooses yeah. it? Exactly this and why, and it really works. Yeah. I think in certain situations, this background music that we don't like, it is actually helpful. 
Yes. But, but quite often it's irritating. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to go back on your first answer and talk to you briefly again about Bayreuth and that orchestra. For those who don't know that it is made up of um, players who regularly come from well, all over Germany, I'm assuming, but mainly from places like Bamberg and, and orchestras uh, near to uh, Bavaria. They are full well the orchestra is full of Wagner enthusiasts they go because they want to go and they want to play this stuff which I think makes a difference to the sound it's like if you you know if you stand in front of an orchestra and you play a great masterpiece that virtually everybody loves the sound is different from something else I mean I would be right in assuming that wouldn't I I mean that that sound in Bayreuth is a specific sound full of people who absolutely love Wagner probably know as much as you do about it, probably as geeky as you are and I are about it. You know, they absolutely got Wagner obsessives. Yes, yes. I mean, you play your whole season at home and then you have would have summer, some time off, and then, no, we go there hmm. at, at the, at the, at the hot, hot year, sit there in 40 degrees in the pit and play these six-hour operas. <laughs> I mean, that, that needs, needs sort of a... You to be sort of passionate about it. Yeah, absolutely, <laughs> it does. Oh, oh boy, they are. <laughs> so I mean, this this kind of festival orchestra environment, it's it is completely unique. Mm-hmm. And yes, they are most mostly from from a great German orchestra from yes around Bavaria, but a lot of people from Berlin, Deutsche Oper, Staatsoper, Berlin Philharmonic are also some some guests from across the borders as well, Zurich. Um, Opera, we had Paris Opera, but yes, it's mainly mainly from the top German orchestras. If you had twenty four hours free, what would you spend it doing? Maybe not in one go. This is a bit too demanding. But if I have a free day, downhill skiing was always my my favorite hobby, yeah. and our our holiday home in Zermatt with the Matterhorn view, skiing Ooh. on a great day. That is that is my favorite counter balancing act hmm. to do wow what a place to have a holiday home near zermatt wow that's amazing uh, it's a wonderful part of the world absolutely love it um we were there a few years ago driving back from italy back to the uk and we went to um uh, interlaken and mm-hmm. did the the eiger and all of that and um yeah what a wonderful part of the world i've never skied uh, i always wish yeah. i had but never have yeah that's that's why I started very very young already, even in in southern Finland. I mean, it's not very very known for its mountains, but small hills we have, and it was a good place to learn learn downhill skiing at age four or five. And now to enjoy these great slopes here in Switzerland. It's rather wonderful. Number four, who would be your favorite conductor or conductors of yesteryear? That's tricky. I mean. Little bit depends which repertoire. Of course. Um, but if if in general, who I, I really find always so exciting to, to listen to, then Carlos Kleiber. Mm. Well, he's a very, very, very regular um answer given to that. But but there is something really yeah. magic about his. Yeah, there is. And and often people will say. I'm sure loads of people have said Carlos Kleiber, so I won't say him and I'll give other answers. But I yeah, I don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> no, well, he was my answer back in episode 50 when I was interviewed for this podcast. Oh, him right. him oh, and well. Nicholas Harnancourt, um, right. 
But I mean, yeah, others have gone very repertoire specific, you know, choosing Richard Strauss or Bruckner or whatever, you know, Gunter Wundt for Bruckner. But yeah, I think I think Carlos Kleiber is is probably the most oft repeated name. If Carlos Kleiber is a regular appearer for question four, question five is somewhat different, Pietari. It is who is your favourite current conductor? And again, that's been uh, often repertoire-led. Sometimes people have politely declined to answer, and one particular conductor refused to answer it. Um, so who would be your favourite current conductor? Or conductors? You can have as many as you like. It's also very interesting. I never, I never thought about it like that to make now some uh, ranking list of my own. I mean... I'm, it, it's it's a long silence. I, I, <laughs> but don't worry, I can I, cut the long silences out. <laughs> I can't really choose a favorite. It's, it's somehow because it's again right on the doorstep again. This pyroid yeah. thing that 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 somehow automatically pops into into the head. Yeah, I mean, and I also I also spent spent some time. Luckily enough. The, the, this handful of people who are still alive who have done the ring there. This mm. is the first thing that came to my mind that I last autumn also saw Daniel Barenboim again and, and just, to, just to discuss about this unique situation there. And, and of course, Tieleman is the, the guy who has the most experience there, has to be mentioned. And mm. unfortunately, Bules, I, I could not have a chance to talk about it, but but these are the hand, the, these few people that who who know exactly what it is like, and and they are very good at very good at it. Mm. So maybe it, it makes sense to mention these these few names now. Well, again, Daniel Barenboim has regularly appeared as an answer, uh, often because he taught uh, or uh, they were assistants of him. Tieleman um, less so. Uh, a few people have mentioned his uh, in specific repertoire, like Wagner and like Bruckner. Um, uh, and so, you know, that those are two very good answers um, and not surprising answers, given where you're about to go next week. That they really, really have some draw a great strength and power out of out of the music and the orchestra. Yeah. It's yeah. somehow in so many countries and so many orchestras going the exact opposite direction. Mm. Everything faster and exciting and lighter and fresher and non-vibrato this and more green that. Hmm. These guys certainly don't fit into any of these <laughs> tendencies. And I, I, I do rather listen to their performances than a lot of these Mm. current trends question six what is the hardest work you've ever conducted that is a very interesting question um and again somehow not so black and white answer possible for me no. i mean again going towards wagner if you are talking about stamina alone physical and mm. even mental strength and uh, to sure there is nothing that compares with the ring in so many ways but mm. to do that as originally intended back-to-back um, -back nights one day of the next one day of the next 
another day of the second cycle starts. That is marathon after marathon after marathon after marathon. It's, <laughs> it has its own uh, demands. Um, if you have a soloist that has a wild mind of their own. <laughs> the grin on your face, knew, I knew exactly where you were going with that. <laughs> can be, this can be stressful for, the, for, for 20, 30 minutes too. Mm. Sure, you have a modern score that it changes patterns every bar. We've all experienced these things too. And sometimes one could have written it out differently as well. And the sounding result for the listener would not have suffered at all. Mm. We have done this kind of sporty, sporty exercises as well. It's good to do, but certainly you can't lose your con uh, concentration. Otherwise, that's thing that you can make a false turn and the orchestra ends up in the, in the water. Mm. So then you have to stay on the map. Yes, that's mm. kind of can be challenging too. Yes, all these famous things, right of spring was always the thing to, to test drive in the conducting class and finally walk on the stage first time ever to conduct in a performance. Of course, the first time for the famous places, 104 and 142. Mm. Finally, the Dan Sakral is there for the first time with public. Sure, you get a little extra <laughs> adrenaline. And it is tons of examples, but these days, you know, after when it's performance and I don't know, 55, then then it by already way before becomes just a pure joy when you yeah. when you know it's when anything you know well enough, then you can really start to enjoy it. Well, there speaks a professional conductor who can tell us exactly the rehearsal numbers, 104 and 142 in the score of the Rite of Spring. Uh, I remember 142. That's the Dancer Corral. Um, you know, that. Uh, I remember trying to put that off, conducting it until I'd really learned it. And eventually I couldn't because somebody programmed it uh, for a, a, a children's concert, I think. Just the Dancer Corral. And I had a month to learn it. But yeah, I mean, that absolutely... Uh, those are the things we have to go through. I laughed at you when you mentioned soloists because we've all been there. And it sometimes, sometimes can be a, a piece of standard repertoire. And, and it's it, it's an old Norman Del Mar phrase that uh, he used to say that it was like taking a jellyfish for a walk with a piece of elastic. Um, the, 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 nothing is solid. Nothing is ever stable. Everything is, is, is a struggle. Um, and, yeah, we've all been there with soloists, haven't we? Mm. Yes. And, yes. And even, even, you know, this can happen so for many reasons and so unexpectedly that you have even worked very well together and then someone gets for some reason a, a burst. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the orchestra can't necessarily, even, even we would stay on, on it. Not everybody can just immediately on the spot go, go along and, and this is a kind of a musical nightmare. Yeah. And it, yeah. it, it's often then such a such a shame, but you just have to you just have to survive. Yes. Well, what's interesting about about both that answer, but especially your first one about the Wagner, is that there is no class, there is no nothing in the world can prepare you for conducting Gotterdämmerung, for instance. What is it? Five and a half, six hours long. You know, especially if you've done the other three operas the three nights before, nobody can prepare you physically, but especially mentally for that level of concentration. 
and with the soloist dancer, it doesn't matter how many times you have a soloist with a memory slip or you have somebody who just has a flight of fantasy one night that nobody saw coming. You can't practice that. You just have to, you know, I was equate it to, they say that what war is like, that the bullets fly at you. So they say slightly slower and you, you know, you're, yeah, your whole world slows down. Um, that's how I feel sometimes in those situations. Uh, and it's over in a flash, but you just say, oh, my God, what, what do I do now? Yeah. But nobody can prepare you for any of this. Yes, absolutely. Number seven. When travelling abroad to conduct, what item could you not leave home without? Especially when um, going to a new place. Hmm which happens, of course, these days much less than in the beginning of the career, but, but a good tool to spot um, a good restaurant mm. in the city. Mm. That used to be a, something, something paper in the hand, and now mm-hmm. it just turned into other forms. Um, or, or then even a phone number from a colleague to a friend already in the orchestra who is a specialist in, like in uh, first time in Hong Kong, Phil, no guide would, you, would ever take you there and mobile phone these days will not help you either. A mm. um, uh, Chinese uh, guy, one of the concert masters, he had already heard and you would like some local food. Yes, very much. And he... He took with a couple of the other players me to a little garage. You open like a door and there was like a 75-year-old grandmother with a wok pan and plastic chairs. This is his favorite spot. Yeah. He cooked this kind of home, home-cooked meal. It was out of this world. Wow. So, uh, a con- contacts, good contacts, I would <laughs> No, well, what's interesting about this is that, you know, as you said, in the old days, it would have been a, some sort of restaurant guide book, paper. Mm. Um, nowadays, it, there will be an app. I mean, you know, TripAdvisor for things like that will rank the restaurants near where you are. You can even see them on a map and think, I can, it'll give you directions, which is yeah. on your phone, and uh, which is a, a banned answer. But I will allow the answer because actually that app, has got me out of more trouble when I've gone on guest conducted. It really has. Um, uh, however, for example, this TripAdvisor, you have no idea what is this background of these reviewers. This is like... No, that's like, true. On, on, online, you have these experts, like, you know, like in this corona vaccination time. Mm. It, I mean, with what qualification everybody is an expert. Yeah. And... Well, someone gives five star review there and has never been to a restaurant in their life. How could you? I mean, you don't know this, and that's a, that is a problem. So I am still looking for the ultimate tool, and that's why this locals recommending something. This is the only only thing that I can trust, or 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 a colleague that I know mm. is a similar minded person. Then, but this actually it's a it's a tricky thing. And okay, these Michelin stars or other points, this is another another thing. Certainly it's a quality guarantees a, a standard, these things too, but but it's actually not so easy. I, mm. I haven't found found an ideal one one tool to, for the for the world. So there is definitely room for that. But but that means it means different things to different people. So 
I don't yeah. think we'll ever see the ideal app, let's say. I think it's true. I mean, with TripAdvisor, I generally tend to read through the reviews, and if there is a common thing said about a specific dish, which everybody raves about, or a common thing said that people all complain about, that's yes. that's the I only think. thing I can I can I can use. Yeah, but you you already have to dig more in, deeply and yeah. study what what these people are all but, about. And yeah, local recommendations, you know, and, and that's the beauty of going somewhere for a second time is, you know, if you if you know nobody in the orchestra the first time, yeah. uh, the second time, or even what even the first time while you're there, if you get chatting to somebody in a coffee queue and talk about food, then you might get recommendations. Second time, you know, often people say, oh, have you tried here or have you tried there? Or where do you eat after the rehearsals? Or, you know, you get yeah. chatting. It does help an awful lot. It also means if you're a foodie, I'm really looking forward to the final question now, which is always my favourite question. So we'll get there in a minute. Number eight, real or fantasy, wherever you like, what is the one thing you would change about being a conductor? I think we already spoke about it. Get rid of the time zones, if you could. <laughs> Travel up and down. <laughs> Travel up and down. <laughs> England, South Africa, whole whole world. If it was on the one, one autobahn, north and south, yeah, yeah, <laughs> make our life easier. Early on, it was a very common answer, and it then stopped appearing for a lot of the rep, the episodes. But actually, right. now the world is is opening back up again after Corona. We are all getting back on planes again, and we are all going sort of going back to where we were. I mean, you are yeah. because of the the orchestras you work with. And yeah, traveling is is still it's still not an enjoyable part of what we do. Yeah, I mean, however, I mean, I have sometimes in the busy schedule when it's also getting worse than they because they allow now the signal uh, internet on on planes and people are talking and having meetings and whatever. But there used to be some of these very long travel also between New Zealand and Europe, mm. and there were no. There were dead silence and a nice, yes, a nice flat seat. Uh, I have slept sometimes better than anywhere else. A mm. couple of these long, long haul trips that it was really the time to be just cut off the grid. Right. And then so, but of course, when it, when it's a, um, I mean, this for some people maybe this New New Zealand is also like a bucket list thing, but once you taking the flight there for the fortieth time, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the the bucket seems less appealing, I would imagine. <laughs> the trip itself, I mean, yes, it is far, and yes, I would, I would take the the, the rocket plane uh, in two hours to Sydney. Yes, I would take it. And um, sure, that, but, but the point was that sometimes this, that you are really now cut off for this 13-hour flight, stop again, another, just have a meal, shower, another 10-hour stint. It's all about attitude. If you, mm. if you it's, a, it's a time to do really rest, study, that nobody can can bother you mm. in, in a way that nor normally is the case so it it can be a nice thing to to disconnect as, as what I th yeah so i think that's what the the modern phrase is yeah. number nine 
What profession other than your own would you like to attempt? Yes, I mean, we, we did further uh, before mentioned that that's that potential sport sporting career yes maybe but it's kind of now in a way boring to repeat and also it is over before it's you know you're you're done by the time you're 35 or maybe 40 if you're ronaldo yes exactly but um um the other thing that when i was young what i was fascinated about was flying Mm. so i mean fighter pilot was sometime like tickling in my so a fighter pilot not a a commercial not, pilot. A, not a commercial pilot fighter pilot i don't know why but that was somehow i was fascinated when i was young about that um heart surgeon was one other thing mm. that was i mean yes we can we can bring joy and other things too to to people through through art but i mean this is literally saving people's lives mm. i i think this and it's still super demanding and i think that would have fit 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 me also well well nothing there with low yeah. pressure you know <laughs> conducting no, full of pressure yes, but yes, yeah yes. there are many similarities so that i think i would have i don't know enjoy is the wrong word but i i could have really done that job and um, now when the first lockdown came, also helping people and to do with flying. I mean, this, we spent a lot of time in the mountains when everything shut down. Um, I was like, I think one and a half months in Zermatt without leaving the place. Hmm. And the Air Zermatt pilots, they do all sorts of things. But big thing is to save these climbers. I mean, and they are such a master pilots in quickly changing conditions next to a cliff, holding it steady. And the other colleague goes down and picks up the injured climber. I mean, chapeau, this is amazing. And I was thinking if, if someone told now that this is going to last for 10 years, this pandemic, hmm. I, I would probably have walked down there to El Zermatt can I enter the training, please? Brilliant. So they're helicopter pilots, I'm assuming, are helicopter, they? Yeah, helicopter pilots. Mm. And I was lucky, some, some friend in New Zealand times has his own helicopter. It's a bit, bit fancy, but uh, a kind of island hopping there and flying to a national park to have a barbecue and fly back in five minutes home. I mean, <laughs> it's incredible. I mean, I, I, but now with, with this incredible machine to help help people in the mountains that could that could be a, a retirement job for me <laughs> brilliant choices and finally if the world were to end tonight what would be your choice of final meal and drink well interesting question hmm. never thought about that sounds a little bit like i'm a death row inmate now <laughs> <laughs> well yeah it's <laughs> a so sort of and, and, and <laughs> Well, okay, let's say that. Okay, let's imagine. So, yes, I mean, like many colleagues, we are lucky to have traveled the world and tried the many nice things, mm. wine and food. I don't, this maybe then is, sounds a bit too decadent choice of wine, but however, I'm going to say it. Burgundy is my 
for wine migrate passion. Mm. We live not so far in Basel, visited many times the villages and went to went to pet the the, the sacred grapes mm. of Romane Conti. So if I could now choose, then let's say definitely a mature, maybe soon, even a bit past the big, 78 Romane Conti. And um, something then very simple. I mean, classic pairing would be with a bit stronger wine than, but however, I don't mind because it's the, it's the last meal, like you say. So simple steak a poivre with the chavarac pepper, some very good French cream in the sauce, and obviously very flambéed with a very good cognac with French butter. So it's actually French ingredients, after all, <laughs> going to be the final meal, but it's, yeah. But the main star would be the Burgundy, great Burgundy wine. What a great answer. Uh, the listener needs to know that we started this interview at two o'clock UK time, which meant that I had a choice. Did I have my lunch before I did the interview or do I have my lunch afterwards? Well, I made the wrong choice because I'm sitting here now. My stomach is rumbling away <laughs> because I'm starving hungry. And that was a that answers made me even hungrier. Uh, what a brilliant answer. And what a brilliant way to spend an hour or so. Thank you so much, uh, Pierre Tari, for our chat. And I hope in the future, maybe we won't be able to afford that particular wine, but it'd be nice to sit down over a steak and carry on chatting. Thank you. Thank you so much. I enjoyed talking to you. Hope to see you soon. A Mic on the Podium was devised and produced by Michael Seal with music by Ben Dawson. Next time, I chat with the first Polish conductor to appear on the podcast. After studying in Warsaw and Vienna, she went on to be both a Tacky Allsop Conducting Fellow and a Dudamel Fellow, and last year started as a music director of Opera Nationale de Lorraine in France. But until then, bye-bye.